This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the sidebar for the week of September 15th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. You can look at the person's DNA and see if they're predisposed to these conditions. Like, we can do things to stop them from getting that cancer in the first place. You know, that's going to be way more satisfying than, you know, that hopeless feeling of just trying to throw drugs at them to try to, 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 try to get the cancer under control. This week, we discuss precision medicine and gene testing with Dr. Jill Hagencord. She is the chief medical officer at Color Genomics. The company provides genetic testing for hereditary cancer and high cholesterol risks, as well as preventative health services, including genetic counseling. We spoke with her about recent breakthroughs in cancer research and precision medicine, the benefits of testing for cancer-causing gene mutations, and what it means for patients, families, and medical providers. Dr. Jill Hagencourt, where is the next big breakthrough when it comes to cancer research? There's um, a lot of exciting things going on in cancer research. Um, and it, it's cancer's always been this kind of ev- evasive thing. Once we kind of think we've found a magic bullet, it finds a way to work around that magic bullet. But one of the most exciting places is in prevention. So not only um, our ability to identify people who are at risk by looking at um, the DNA that they're born with. We, certain people are born with a predisposition um, to develop cancer. We can now identify those people and try to prevent the cancers from ever happening. If the cancers do happen, we've got exciting new um, genomic technologies that let us actually monitor your blood. These are called liquid biopsies. Um, and so you no longer have to like, you know, wait for a tumor to, to develop the the when it's when it's very small and tiny, it kind of throws off little pieces of DNA into your bloodstream, and we can detect those so that we can see if you've got a relapse um, that that's coming or recurrence. That's um, we can pick it up earlier and therefore have a better chance of um, controlling it. Um, and uh, the probably the third thing is um, kind of immunogenomics or, or really understanding the immune system's role in in stopping cancers from developing in the first place, and then once they've developed, in you know fighting them off properly and being able to kind of manipulate those immune mechanisms to better fight cancer. You have studied this disease at Stanford University, also at the University of California, San Francisco, at Creighton University, and at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I want to go back to a, a pretty basic question. What <laughs> is cancer? How does it form? And why is it so deadly? At um, a molecular level, what what cancer is, is it's your normal cells that were normal and healthy, and, and every cell, essentially all cells in your body have a nucleus, and inside the nucleus is the DNA that gives the cell instructions about how to behave. And what happens in cancer, either due to, you know, a combination of inherited and environmental reasons, the DNA inside that cell gets broken. 
And so the message that it gives to the cell goes haywire. So instead of saying, okay, you're just going to grow until you touch your neighbor cell and you're going to behave like a skin cell or you're going to behave like a muscle cell or you're going to behave like a brain cell, right? Um, Instead of that normal message, it gets um, a broken message. And it, it, it tells it to just keep growing and growing and growing and growing, no matter how many other cells you're touching or how big you're getting or if you're doing your proper job as your assigned cell type, cell type. So it just it, it ultimately goes down to the pieces of the DNA being broken and giving bad messages to the cell. And now it appears, based on your research, that we're moving not only from an early diagnosis to try to cure cancer, but also looking for ways to prevent it from happening in the first place. So explain. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, if, if you look at the whole field of oncology, it, it really is, or historically it has been, um, a specialty that it just focuses on treating cancer. Um, and it's and having a lot of colleagues who are oncologists, like it's, it's a, you know, kind of frustrating. Eventually it, it seems like cancer almost always wins. You know, you've got your success stories, but there's a lot of, a lot of times where you, um, you know, it's, it's a really difficult situation um, for the patients and their families. And, and you, you can start to feel a little bit helpless as an oncologist um, and then, you know, when you talk to them about this, this concept of, hey, you know, if, if you can look at the person's DNA and see if they're predisposed to these conditions, like we can do things to stop them from getting that cancer in the first place. You know, that's going to be way more satisfying than, you know, that hopeless feeling of just trying to throw drugs at them to try to, 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 try to get the cancer under control. Um, and so there's a, a number of inherited conditions that are passed down, you know, through a family tree. Um, that we understand well enough that if we know you have that change in your DNA, we know exactly what actions you and your doctor should consider taking to prevent you from getting the cancer that you're predisposed to. Some of those examples might be um, like probably the most famous one is the BRCA genes, BRCA genes. So that's the Angelina Jolie genes, and it predisposes you essentially to breast and ovarian cancer and a few other types of cancers. But there's really well-established options um, that you have that are paid for by your insurance to prevent you from getting those cancers that you're predisposed to. And they can include anything from increased surveillance. So instead of starting mammography at age 50, you might you would start mammography plus MRI at, a, at an earlier age. Um, there's certain medications you can take that can reduce your risk of developing cancer. And then um, there's also uh, surgeries that you can take, that you can do that would uh, reduce your risk of developing the cancer. I'm curious, though, is genetic testing complicated? What, what do you look for? My training is I'm a board-certified pathologist with subspecialty boards in molecular genetic pathology, which means I'm the kind of doctor um, that kind of spent my whole career focusing on how do you run a good good clinical testing laboratory? How do you um, design and develop tests that are meaningful and useful and reliable and accurate? And last of all, how do you, you know, interpret those results and, and work with the, the care team um, to, to integrate those test results into their, into their um, management plan? And then the, the subspecialty that I have is molecular genetic pathology. So essentially, I do all that now, but just for DNA. <laughs> so uh, when you ask me if, if um, DNA testing is complicated, it feels like um, it's something that we've been doing um, in, in medicine since the 90s. Um, 
where we, we've been able to look at DNA in one way or another and be able to tell somebody something about the state of their health. Um, what's changed in the last 10 years is that the cost of sequencing DNA plummeted dramatically, where it used to cost you know, $4,000 to look at the sequence of two genes. Um, it, now, to look at those same two genes, you know, that, that cost is now down to $249 at color. So the, the, and the fact that it's gotten so much more affordable to do it that now we're looking at broader pieces of the genome instead of just little tiny spots in the genome. So it's gotten more complicated in the sense that we're able to see more, um, but the actual act of, of looking at pieces of DNA and making interpretations about what it means is, is um, something that people train for decades to, to learn how to do like any other um, specialty in medicine. Why did you decide to pursue this particular career path? <laughs> um, probably like most people, it's, a, it's just kind of a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of luck and, and, and chance um, and, and opportunities, you know, not being afraid to take the opportunities when they come. But I um, was at Stanford in the 90s, and uh, my roommate was a postdoc, and she was working on these, this new technology called Arrays. And what that, what that means um, is that instead of looking at one analyte at a time um, in, in your test model, you could look at hundreds or even thousands of them all at the same time on this you know, piece of glass that um, had a whole bunch of um, – uh, I don't know what to, uh, trying to think of an easy word, uh, a, a layman's word for this, but a whole bunch of probes, essentially a whole bunch of sticky things, hundreds of them that can grab – uh, you know, all that information at once, and then you would use a computer to process the data. And, you know, prior to that point in time, it was always, you know, the human brain of the health professional who would interpret um, and, and calculate things that had to do with, with testing in a clinical laboratory. And so it really kind of spun my head around, and I thought, gosh, in the, in the course of my career, you know, this changes everything. We're, we're not going to practice medicine the same way you know, at the end of my career as we're practicing it now. And it's this kind of technology, this massively parallel testing technology that's going to change everything. And I want to be, you know, a part of that. I want to be, you know, one of the first generation of doctors who specialize in that. And that at the time didn't have a name. <laughs> so I went and invented a career path where I did um, the, the fellowship in molecular genetic pathology. And then I also did a, another fellowship in what's called what was called pathology oncology informatics. Um, so essentially, I, I was doing that. I was doing the massively parallel testing technologies and combining it um, with the computer to, you know, kind of computationally rebuild the genome inside the com computer and then use, like, essentially a, a genome browser, which is kind of like, um, you know, a, a, a Google or something that just lets you sur surf through the genome and ask it questions inside the computer. You know, we've never had that kind of ability before. And then once we kind of got that working, like how can I apply this to a, a clinical laboratory um, setting? So taking it, ushering it from the research lab setting into the clinical lab setting. And what we call this now is precision medicine. Um, so I was just kind of really lucky that I, I caught that. I took a gamble that that was a real wave and, and got on the wave, and it's, it's, it's paid off. I've, I'm really lucky to, to do what I do. Well, let me underscore that point because it really is rethinking or redefining cancer research. Yeah, I mean, it's always like there, there's never these these big sudden movements. Um, you know, the paradigm shift happens slowly, but it's a powerful new tool. 
um, that lets us look at at cancer genomes in a in a completely new way with much much more information that that we have to to reconcile together and we have to use computers to do it. So not only can we look at the human beings, you know, normal DNA um, in, using this new technology, we can also look at their the the DNA that's inside their cancer cells using this new technology, and then we can also look at the DNA that is in their immune cells and how their immune system is behaving before, during, and after the, the cancer. And then integrating all of that data together, it really is a kind of a, a big data um, kind of situation. If a parent or a sibling uh, passes away from prostate cancer or breast cancer or melanoma, what's the likelihood that somebody else in the family will get that type of cancer? Well, it's different for each cancer type. Um, and so what you have to do, what you really need to do is kind of sit down with your family, talk to your family members, and, and you can do this through Colors website. We have um, a really great tool called a, a Collaborative Family Health History. And um, instead of like going to your doctor's office and they're rushed and, you know, they've got 10 minutes to see you and, um, you know, they're trying to ask really quickly for a family health history, it, it tends to be pretty incomplete. And like maybe you remember that your Uncle Mark in Green Bay, Wisconsin, you know, had a cancer of some kind, but you can't remember what kind it was or how old he was when he got it, right? But if you're actually doing it outside of the doctor's office and you're sitting on the computer um, in, our, in, in Colors program, right, you just enter in the email addresses of all your family members. You fill in your information about your health history, add in the email addresses um, of your the other people in your family, and then it Color contacts them and encourages them to add in their health history, and it will correct any errors that you made about their health history. So it enables the entire extended family to have a much more reliable, robust um, family history. And then you would take that to your physician, and he, he or she can look at it and say, oh, I, I see a pattern of um, certain kinds of cancer in your family. And it's not always going to be um, necessarily a prostate cancer syndrome, hereditary prostate cancer can be part of several different kinds of, of hereditary cancer syndrome. So you really do need to, to talk with somebody who's familiar with those hereditary cancer syndromes to kind of determine what your risk is. Um, and, you know, then the other alternative is to, to get a test like color. Um, or not, it's not really an alternative. It's, it's in addition to that, you can get a test like color that is instead of having you have to kind of guess at what the family history is or that if it's incomplete because certain people have passed away, this is a way that you can just you know, look at your DNA directly and see if you've inherited an increased risk for prostate cancer. You may have already answered my next question, but, but who should mm -hmm. take these tests? Should everyone undergo this type of testing? So um, definitely people who have a strong personal or family history of cancer should absolutely get this kind of testing. But then there's also people who, um, uh, you know, who are kind of comfortable, um, proactive information seekers. Um, those are the type of people who tend to gravitate towards these preventative health tests, and, including um, colors preventative health tests. Um, and we, we, you know, try to make sure that you've got all of the touch points with um, the appropriate healthcare providers along the way, that you're getting your questions asked, asked and answered along the way. And that if you were to have questions or if you were to get a, a positive result, that you really do have, um, you know, that easy connection with a genetic counselor who can help explain to you what it means, what it doesn't mean, and what your, um, you know, next steps should be as far as working with your healthcare provider to come up with a management plan.
And what should those next steps be? If you take a test, you go to color.com and realize that you may have a predisposition for a certain type of cancer. Can it be prevented? Um, so there are preventative guidelines, and that's one of the things that's um, kind of unique about cancer compared to some of the other first-generation uh, DNA testing companies that, that are out there, is that we really focus on things that are overtly actionable and preventable and have existing evidence-based guidelines, um, you know, sanctioned by, uh, you know, national medical professional societies. Um, so in our, in our reports, we connect the patient and their physician directly into those those preventative guideline recommendations from entities like, you know, NCCN, um, which is a, a, a cancer professional organization that that puts out recommendations for how to prevent these cancers and people who are at risk for them. Typically, does insurance cover the cost of these tests? Right now in the U.S. healthcare system, um, if you are at, at significant personal if you've got a significant personal or family history of cancer, um, insurance will typically cover the cost of the hereditary cancer test, genetic test. Um, the problem with that is, well, first of all, the reason that evolved that way is because, as I mentioned before, historically, looking at DNA sequence was very expensive and very laborious. It would cost you know, thousands of dollars to look at one single gene, and oftentimes you know, it would take months sometimes years to get the get the results back and so because it was so expensive um and laborious as a healthcare system we had to to utilize that kind of testing very judiciously and so we kind of developed some policies that said okay we're only going to do this kind of testing on somebody who's at at very high risk of of actually getting a positive but now with the this plummeting cost of DNA sequencing over the last 10 years, it, it kind of changes the game completely. We no longer have to be judicious, and we can look at lots of genes for not very much money. And um, so it, it, it kind of changes the, the cost-effectiveness um, equation pretty substantially um, once you get down to a price that color has at like $249. And so uh, I think we're in the process of, of – of starting the discussion of, uh, you know, more universal testing. So not just people who are at high risk, but um, people who may not meet criteria for being high risk. And studies have come out recently showing that actually, if you, if you just test the high risk people, you're missing about 50% of people who are positive for BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations, for example. So we're really leaving a lot of people behind. And I'm curious, at what age, a newborn, a toddler, uh, you know, eight, nine-year-old child or a teenager, what's the, the appropriate age to get this testing done? Um, so for hereditary cancer testing, it um, typically we, we say um, over the age of 18, and that's for kind of, um, you know, medical ethics purposes. You want, you want to have the, the person getting tested to kind of have their own autonomy of making the decision of knowing whether or not they're positive or negative. And so typically we won't do um, testing for hereditary cancer on children. Now, there's other kinds of um, hereditary conditions, like, for, for example, hereditary high cholesterol. It's called familial hypercholesterolemia. That you're actually, you're born with high cholesterol. So you, in that situation, you actually would want to test the children because you want to get them on statins by age eight. Um, so it kind of depends on what condition you're testing and um, kind of the medical ethics that have grown up around that. This is going to be a broad question, but I want to go back to what you said earlier, because uh, using your words, rethinking the cancer research and a game changer when it comes to cancer. So what does this mean for hospitals, 
for insurance companies and for cancer physicians? The opportunity to, you know, prevent cancer before it starts or to identify your risk for, you know, uh, cardiovascular events before you have them, um, you know, it, it, it changes us from instead, instead of being a sick care system, which is what we have now, um, right, the, the, the whole system is designed and optimized around sick people. Right, the the insurance companies, the you know the drug companies make money by making drugs for sick people, and device companies make money by selling devices to sick people, and the doctors make money by doing procedures on sick people, you know, and the hospitals make money by you know charging you know access fees um, to use various parts of the, the the hospital for the sick people to have their procedures done, right? Though, and there's nobody in that that ecosystem who is who is really being incentivized for prevention. Um, it's not that they don't care and that they don't wish it would happen. It's just that it's not the way that, that the whole system is just not incentivized um, for it to go that way. It's actually incentivized, you know, to make more sick people. And so the only people who are incentivized to change that are, you know, the healthcare consumer themselves, right? Nobody cares about my health more than I do. Um, and so once we get this down, this, 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 massively parallel testing technologies that we've got um, developed over the last 10 years, dropping the price down to a consumer price point means that the healthcare consumer can start to make choices for him or herself and outside I this, uh, the oh, insurance system. I'm sorry, I and cut then, you off. You can pick up that last point outside the insurance. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, yeah, so we can get outside the insurance system. Um, and then the even though the insurance system isn't incentivized to pay for prevention, um, because typically people move from one carrier to another um, about every two or three years. So they're not terribly incentivized to, to pay for testing for a cancer that you might not get for 20 years, right? So, but you, as a healthcare consumer, are incentivized to do that. And I think once we empower that healthcare consumer in that way, it forces the change towards, towards prevention. Um, and, you know, the, interestingly enough, the, other, the other, only other stakeholder in, in our healthcare uh, ecosystem that is is at all incentivized for prevention is self-insured employers because they want to keep you healthy and productive for you know the decades to come. Um, and so Color has partnered with over 50 um, self-insured employers to offer this as a health benefit to their employees. And I read that this is a global project, including a young researcher in Trinidad and Tobago. So tell us that story. Yeah, so this is this is just kind of part of the DNA of color, so to speak. Um, it, you know, we it's yes, the mission of the company is um, you know to empower people to you know be preventative, um, you know, towards their health and have and, and enable these kind of preventative ac access to preventative information and tools that will help you stay healthy. Um, but it really is you know the, the founders of the company all the way through. You know, we we want to make a, a, an impact. We want to do we want to do good, and so um, we have um, a Color Foundation, which we've set up a research grant, and so we we can give these research grants out to um, typically they're they're young investigators who are just starting to get started in their career, and they don't really have a lot of funding, or maybe have no funding, but they've got a great idea. And in this case, this was a um, a young medical researcher from Yale who grew up in Trinidad, Tobago, and 
um, she had this when she was, um, you know, working in the hospital systems in her home country. She just compared to the United States, noticed that they seemed to have a lot more cancer and they seemed to have a lot more hereditary cancers where she would see it running through families. And so she wanted to test the hypothesis that there was going to be a higher percentage of people with hereditary cancer syndromes, you know, broken pieces of DNA that they're, that they're born with um, the, the, in Trinidad compared to other countries. But what she needed to do was to be able to look at all of the genes that we know to be associated with hereditary cancer syndromes to prove that hypothesis. And that's exactly what color does. Um, in addition to that, she didn't have access to a laboratory. We have access to the laboratory. So we could actually take care of the end-to-end um, uh, data, you know, data development for her, right, and then, and then just pass her the, the, the finalized pieces of data at the end so that she could do her analysis. Um, but we could, you know, send the participants' kits in the mail. They didn't have to take a day off work to go into the hospital to sign up for a research program, right? We, we made it easy and accessible, and then we gave information back to the research participants, right? They got their, the results of their test given back to them, which is atypical um, for a research program. Typically, a research um, participant gets nothing back for, for participating. You're a research subject, not actual, you know, uh, co-participant in the project. And with color, we can change that. We can actually give back the information to these people. And then color has genetic counselors available for them. Um, Trinidad Tobago doesn't have any genetic counselors. So we, because we we're able to provide, you know, all of those touch points uh, for her, she could, she could test this hypothesis in a, you know, responsible, ethical, um, you know, reliable way. Um, and so what she found out, the results were that the you know typically you would expect you know somewhere around 10% um of people would be positive for a hereditary cancer syndrome and she was seeing a rate of 25% in Trinidad which is incredibly high and so now you know she came back we we actually did a a, a big um we we brought her to to the color headquarters she told her story to the whole company um you know, everybody cried. <laughs> um, we had her parents on the line from um, from Trinidad up on the TV. And then we actually, you know, gave her, that's where we surprised her and gave her additional funding to extend the research project. And so she was the first recipient of, of the Color Research Grant. But that's something that we have ongoing um, for young researchers just like her. And now she's, you know, in Trinidad, she's using this this information and this data to help convince their government that they need to, you know, provide this kind of testing for all of their population and provide the kind, the preventative services that they need um, for all of their patients. So she's just she's an amazing young woman, and and we were really lucky to be able to work with her and help launch her career. And Dr. Hagencord, let me conclude with this point because you are in San Francisco. You will be here in Washington on Monday, September the 18th, for a panel discussion sponsored by the Washington Post focused on these very issues. But you are in the heart of Silicon Valley, where ideas are turned into products. So what's next for you, for the company you work for, and for genomic research? You know, I think there's, you know, the nice thing about um, about our broken healthcare system is that it's, it's so broken in so many ways that there's just a lot of low-hanging fruit. And so I'm really excited to kind of see health tech um, starting to grow up. And to get, you know, see more and more um, investors willing to invest in these kind of companies and more and more healthcare providers wanting to work with these kind of companies or even work for these kind of companies. Um, and so in kind of the, the, the broad 
sense of what's next in genomics. Um, hopefully, you know, the genomics is going to be kind of one of the, the first examples of, of truly successful health tech companies. Um, as far as for color, um, you know, we're starting with, you know, the two biggest causes of morbidity and mortality in the United States, which is um, cancer and cardiovascular disease. And what we really want to do is, you know, we're a preventative health service. We're not a genetic test. We're not most um, testing companies, right? The, the experience is over. The transaction is over when they hand you a static copy, uh, you know, a PDF of your genetic test result written in, you know, deep scientific language that you don't understand. They hand, you, you know, they hand that to your doctor, actually. And that's the end of the transaction. That's the beginning of the transaction for color. The, the genomics and genetics and preventative genetics is the way to kind of get you into the door and get you into our experience. And then once you're, once you're in, we want to be able to provide additional tools that can help you stay healthy. And, and that would include things beyond just genomics. Um, and so we will, over the years, look to expand not only horizontally into other preventative genetic disease areas, but also vertically to um, integrate more tools for health and prevention. The website is color.com. Jill Hagencord is the chief medical officer joining us from San Francisco. We thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.